Welcome back to the Datapreneur podcast. Today, we have a guest with a very diverse background. He started his career by pursuing computer engineering in one of the top engineering universities in India. He then transitioned to liberal arts with the Young India Fellowship at Ashoka University. And after that, he completed his master's degree in economics at the Graduate Institute Geneva. During his time in Switzerland, he was also a research intern at the World Trade Organization. Currently, he is pursuing his PhD at the University of Cambridge, where he is a research assistant for some exciting projects. So let's get started. Hi, Kishan. I was going through your profile and I saw that you have a very interesting journey. You started out uh, with a degree in computer engineering, but then you transitioned into public policy and now you're pursuing a PhD in economics. How did you make that transition? So I think even as an engineer, I think many people in this uh, STEM degrees do feel this quite often. Um, you have a curiosity which inherently that is uh, a component in these degrees. Uh, but immediately you realize the outcomes of these curiosity are usually not manifested well enough. Um, typically you end up into corporate jobs or jobs which are not motivating enough. So one of the things that I wanted to try out is social sciences research because my curiosity in terms of math and technicalities easily spilled over into my curiosity into the real world. Um, and I think the moment you speak of quote-unquote real world, which most of the social sciences deal with, um, it gets way more interesting than um, very abstract stuff that you might usually do in math personally for me, um, and that I got a taste when I started. I was in Hong Kong for a bit. I, I did political economy. I started off with courses like economic philosophy, and now for an engineer to take up courses on philosophy and look at economic philosophy was strange, but I really started liking it. Because um, many other experiences that you would have had in life translates to this. And particularly economics within social sciences, because some of the recent inventions or some of the recent uh, innovations in, in, in economics have made it very amenable for uh, STEM students to thrive in economics. So if you, even if you look at some of the best Indian economists in the recent days, usually they have either had uh, an engineering degree or, or eventually an MBA degree, all of which ends up giving you good mathematical abilities. And across the world as well, um, some of the profound contributions in the field have been made by mathematicians or, or physicists who, who, who are equipped to do, to do so. Uh, yeah, so that took me from um, engineering eventually to Ashoka. It's a long journey, but I think it, it's quite worth it. That sounds really fun to be able to explore so many topics before you decide that you really want to pursue this. So um, you were talking about some recent innovations that have come. So could you talk a little about that? Right. So, I mean, the field of economics has evolved quite a bit from the times of, say, Adam Smith and the initial people who we consider as economists, John Stuart Mill, their philosophies and so on. Uh, 
until the mid 20th century where mathematics became the means for economics. Uh, all the work cost modeling, everything came through mathematical theory. And I mean, we have a lot of people to thank that for, but particularly one name that should never go missing is uh, Paul Samuelson. Um, he wrote his thesis in Harvard. Um, and the title was The Foundation of Economic Analysis. Um, and all of the modern economics in terms of say the optimization that we do usually in macroeconomic models and so on, are all based on some of his work where he introduced math. Now, now we, we escape from a very prose style of persuasive economics to a patently model-based um, mathematics-based economics. So this, this was the early uh, 50s and 60s where economic theory became a big deal based on mathematics. And eventually, I think we will get into it, uh, where econometrics develops uh, on, 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 an, on, a, on a different tangent as well, and, and so on comes in data, which I think we will get into. But the invention that I was particularly speaking about is, is, is Paul Samuelson's introduction of math, which was, became the ultimate arbiter of truth in social sciences, where economics slightly deviates from the rest of the social sciences becomes more STEM-like than the others. Right, and recently, uh, even universities have started considering uh, economics as a STEM subject. So do you think the innovation by Paul had something to do with this? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, that I, I wouldn't necessarily restrict it to Paul Samuelson entirely. Uh, just the whole ecosystem was gearing towards that. I mean, when Cobb Douglas and so on, they started looking at the US economy, started to match data with mathematics models and so on. Eventually, there came about a lot of people, especially in the US economics, uh, that also slightly coincides with the decline of economics elsewhere in the world in terms of institutions, uh, because US really caught on to the, the engineering and the economics combination of uh, mathematics, and they really hit it well. I mean, 21st century and the 20th century is a big victory for them on that matter. Um, and economics today, if you look at a PhD in economics, it's almost uh, an applied mathematics PhD. Um, and this is entirely driven mostly by the US ecosystem. Um, the Harvard, MIT, where it began eventually and then moved on to the rest of the world um, because that that is how it's meant to be. I mean. Um, as I said, mathematics has now become the arbiter of truth because the language of economics is now accessible to everybody um, through mathematics. Um, and that has caught on for the rest of the world. What topics exactly in mathematics are used? Because uh, I think game theory is the only uh, economics topic that has contributed to math. So I was wondering if game theory has anything to do with this. Uh, to be honest, actually, game theory has a different language and a different approach of its own. I mean, uh, the concepts of equilibrium got redefined and nuanced in, in through game theory and so on. But even before that, I think every field of economics, I mean, it's easier to answer this question once you segment the fields of economics into uh, a, a more manageable thought process of, say, macroeconomics. Yes, there's a lot of mathematics in macroeconomics today. Uh, in, 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 in say from conceptualizing the model uh, to actually working out the dynamics and the, um, 
and the interplay of different models, say for example, the DSG models, which is which is one of the mainstays in the macroeconomics student in you know, a PhD. Uh, it's a lot of simulation. It's 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 a lot of statistics as well. Even if you get into econometrics, everything from uh, you know linear algebra to real analysis is is it's, it's almost a, a statistics course by itself. Um, so, and econometrics is something that has been used in all the subfields of economics. I mean, anything that I do or anything anybody else does in economics, you have to know a good deal of econometrics. And that involves uh, a lot of calculus, good amount of optimization in microeconomics. Say for example, some of the common things that we do in microeconomics is um, modeling based on optimization. And all of this, is patently calculus based um, when you when you talk of say critical conditions or anything of that sort. It's, it's extremely mathematical. Um, I can't begin to say exactly because it's it's so wide and it traverses every uh, field of economics. But I'm I can tell you that everything is mathematical, except maybe a one exception or one caveat to this would be the political economy, which is still patently qualitative. Uh, some of the thought processes, the way uh, arguments are made in political economy or economic history are the only ones uh, which are probably not mathematical enough. So um, let's transition into the importance of data in economics. So you are an economist. So how important is data to your research today? Right, again, I think I will probably take a holistic picture jumping into some of my research itself. Uh, now, after Paul Samuelson's, let me pick off where Paul Samuelson left, um, introduced mathematics. It, it wasn't the only field that entered into economics because economics um, in a way is very introspective and invites people from all over uh, the social sciences. The other disciplines have had uh, a beautiful integration with technical economics. So for example, say psychology got integrated into economics, uh, what is popularly known as behavioral economics. I mean, Daniel Kahneman won a Nobel for that. Uh, law has been always integrated with economics, which is in patently visible in political econ. They've had two Nobel winners in that, James Buchanan and Frederick Hayek. Uh, sociology and anthropology as well has been long part of economics. I mean, some of the work of uh, the other Nobel laureate, George Akerlof, they reflect all these models and sub-disciplines of social sciences within economics. Now, my, my point of saying this is uh, because of all of this uh, innovations happening within economics, the heterogeneity in the source of the way we source data has been quite vast. Um, so, I mean, if you look at say some of the things that George Akerlof writes, things like information asymmetry, like how do you start dealing with quantifying things like that? Um, he he worked on actually um, secondhand uh, car markets in India, interestingly, and things like quantifying how does the quality of service work? I mean, you need to at the end with the mathematical model be able to quantify all of this. So data has become very interesting because um, of all the wedding of different sub-disciplines within social sciences into economics. Now, some of the things, some of the innovative projects that we work on, say for example, is religion and economics. Um, 
so it's, it's super interesting in the way we look at some of the very niche fields within economics. Uh, I, uh, do you want me to continue on the, probably give examples on how religion economics works. For example, yeah, yeah. we're looking at, yeah. So we're looking at how mental health is, is, a, is a resultant of religious, religiosity and your religious beliefs. Um, that's truly innovative in a sense we quantify and say, how much of somebody's mental health um, is because of the way they are in religious beliefs? Uh, for example, let me give you let me give you a project that we're working on. Um, in the U.S., we have survey data on uh, COVID infections, COVID nineteen infections, and particularly the lockdown restrictions, because of which a lot of people were not able to go to their regular church, they weren't able to attend their masses, and so on. How does now um, you're not being able to go to the church affects your mental health, right? So we have baseline results on how religious people got more affected than otherwise. Uh, or the flip side of it is usually religious people have better mental health. Now to be able to say things like this causally and to be able to move beyond correlation, we need two things. One of it is, is very good economic modeling. And the second part of it is data. Uh, to be able to say things more authoritatively beyond moving beyond subjective experiences, we need good data. Uh, and and um, we, we can get into specifics of some of them, but the heterogeneity in economics data is, is really vast and it's really interesting. Right. So now you mentioned something about uh, for research, you need good data. What exactly is the difference between good data and bad data? Right, so I mean, um, it, it, there's so many different steps in the way you design a survey for which you, from which you get data and, and how you make analysis on, on the collected data. So things can go wrong in so many stages uh, because the standard today in social sciences is no more correlation. Things have moved beyond correlation to causation. People now demand for stricter, uh, restrictions on what you're able to say. Um, and this, although it could be patently economics, it is having a spillover on all the other social science disciplines. For example, today, if you see political science majors, or if you see uh, people who study Paul science in the US, the amount of economics that they do, the amount of identification strategy, what 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 is necessary for causation uh, is actually intense. Now, things can fail in many different ways. It could fail in the beginning of uh, how the survey itself was designed. Um, in a sense, to be able to say, for example, um, people with better mental health are more religious. Okay, that's, that's slightly implying a, a level of causation. Now, there are so many confounding factors in which I can say, okay, their mental health is not exactly coming from their religion, but it's coming from so many other factors. Now, when I design my survey, if I'm not able to account for potential confounding factors, the survey design is wrong. So any data that you get later on is garbage. Now, we went and interviewed about 6,000 people on, on what they are. Now, if I did not collect information on their income, which is one of the most important things for mental health, my, my design is, is junk and my data is junk. So good and bad data per se flows from survey design usually um, because the idea of classical econometrics inference 
um, comes from the fact that these samples are random. Uh, samples are random and there is a good survey design based on which we can make a wider claim of statistical inference, right? So, so many things that are very well laid out in econometrics, those principles need to be followed to be able to call good data. And mind you, this is actually because the theory moves usually very quickly and you know faster than empirics. The standard for something in economics to be called very good work is pretty high. Um, even things like, okay, the recent winners of Nobel in economics, um, say Esther Duflo and Abhijit Banerjee, they're pretty popular to, in their work for doing randomized control trials, right? So they're, 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 it's a way of um, doing experiments and having causal inference from that. Now people in, I mean, some of their papers in the past have been tried to replicate and people subjected to a lot of criticism. And this happens throughout economics. Any strategy that you take on, any survey that you take on is usually, uh, especially when it becomes popular, is looked through very carefully. So the standard for good data and good work is pretty high, which is good uh, because it flows from very solid mathematical foundations in, and statistical foundations in uh, econometrics. Yeah, that makes sense because unless you know what you're trying to do with the data, you whatever data you will get will be junk data. Unless you have a strict design, a survey design for the data, it, it won't really matter what you collect. So um, what type of data do you use for economics research? Uh, and in this one, you could go into depth about your research particularly. Right, so um, some of things, let, let me let me begin by some things which are interesting generally, and then let me dive into my own research and some of the projects that we're working on. Um, because the field of economics, as I said, has evolved so much, it's been starting to cater for um, very abstract notions on one end, and on the other end, very specific policy notions as well. Uh, let me give you on, on on the other end, what, what it means to be abstract, for example, people inherently, some, some theories propound that, okay, people have an inherent utility function built in them. And this is very abstract. And although it's confirmed by many experiments and many data, there are usually so many outliers to this. There are many things which don't fit into this theory, but it typically, it's a very abstract notion. Things like risk aversion, uh, behavior of people, conforming to a certain kind of risk taking is all very abstract notion, but we have been able to successfully uh, model these things and then based on data, give actually correct numbers for them. Um, now th th this, this, this kind of data is, is very helpful for understanding specific behavior of people and so on. But on the other end, we also have very specific policy implications of what economics data implies. Um, in 2001, we had a, so sort of a breakthrough in economics um, in terms of institutional economics. So there was a very famous paper called the Colonial Origins of Comparative Development. I, I think any economist will be able to cite this very well. Uh, basically, this paper was written by um, Asimoglu, uh, Jameson Robinson. Um, now, um, Johnson and Robinson, pardon. Um, now this basically, it's, it's a paper on why different countries have uh, 
a varying trend in GDP per capita or the amount of money they have in uh, per person in each country. Now their proposition was that it's because of the kind of institutions that the colonial rulers left behind. For example, they in India probably on one end in Africa, colonial left a very extractive institutions, and on the other end, say uh, Australia and New Zealand, they left more a neo-European state of institutions. Um, now their, their their claim is that wherever institutions were better off, uh, their incomes today reflect a very good state versus say something like Africa and in India it, it's a mid it's a mid range level of institutions. Now to be able to say these things um, mathematically is a challenge uh, to be able to quantify the quality of institutions to be able to say causally um, where they use something called as settler mortality. I mean, the mechanism that they proposed for this was uh, if, if the colonials came over to these countries and if the country was say ridden with a lot of diseases and very hard to stay, their main aim was to design institutions to just extract whatever is left in the country and move out as, as soon as possible. Now getting this kind of historical data on what kind of deaths happened for the colonials in these countries, uh, what kind of institutions already existed. These things are really interesting in terms of being able to quantify. Um, so, but these things have a very specific policy implication, right? I mean, on the other end, if you look at the macroeconomic um, importance of uh, data as well. Now, many firms and many corporations won't even enter countries uh, just because they have bad data. Because again, data through mathematics and mathematical modeling becomes the arbiter of truth. People don't really trust political systems. People, firms don't really trust governments overall, but data can't lie. I mean, economies can't be rigged in the long run. Um, so there is a high reliance of quality data, frequency of data. Uh, and if you're able to make good inferences from the data, as I said previously, that makes a lot of difference. Uh, now, to, to get into some of the things that we work in, uh, I mean, there's always, if you draw a production possibilities frontier, you know, on, on the y-axis, you have innovations, on the x-axis, you have rigor. There's always a trade-off between innovation and rigor. Now, if you choose some things which are patently innovative in terms of their approach for project, uh, it can't be too rigorous. Uh, that would be the case with some of the projects that we're working on because it's religion and mental health. Uh, my supervisor has designed uh, a measure for religiosity. Now, measuring these things are not are not easy, right? So, how how do I get to know somebody's commitment to religion? How do I quantify those things? Are a challenge, uh, but we're getting there um, one step at a time. We have to rely on previously accepted literature and so on. Um, but we're working on mental health that has been causally linked to religion. So religious people tend to have better mental health and we are trying to see how lockdowns impacted that kind of mental health. Uh, for example, religious versus non-religious people, their mental health difference is equivalent to you losing about $100,000. You know, to be able to quantify those things is, is a challenge. And I think we're doing that uh, one step at a time. This concludes the first segment of the interview with Kishan. 
Stay tuned for some exciting questions. And in the upcoming episode, we will dive deep into his research at University of Cambridge. And I will see you soon.